Welcome to Fringes, a no-frills kind of podcast where I talk to trans and gender non-conforming Jews about our experiences with Tali Tote and Tzitzit. My name is Emma June, though you may hear me referred to as Emma or EJ as well. I'm a white trans Jew with a mixed Sephardi and Ashkenazi background. I'm a creator, lover of colorful things, and, relevantly, the person who ties Tzitzit and does shipping at Adva Designs the small Talit business that is sponsoring and supporting this podcast. After spending so much time with Talitot at work, and so little time wearing one, especially because I felt so alienated from the Talis I have, and from so many that I've seen, I started to wonder how other trans Jews related to this ritual object. I found very little content online on the subject, and decided to start asking around. Thus, a podcast was born. Before we get to the first interview, Let's get some definitions down. First, talitot. What are talitot? Talitot, or talit in the singular, are prayer shawls worn by Jews that have knotted fringe on each of their four corners. This fringe, known as tzitzit, is tied with a prayer and is what make talitot ritually significant, what make them holy. A few other things to know. Most traditionally, and for most of history, talitot were only worn by cis men and boys. This has changed a lot, especially in the last 50 years. While in some Jewish communities, men are still the only ones to wear talitot, they are now commonly worn by people of all genders. There are a few kinds of talitot. There is the prayer shawl you most commonly see, which hangs over both shoulders. A talit gadol is a larger talit that is often worn over the head and down the back. A talit katan is a small vest worn daily as an undershirt that has tzitzit on its corners. Talitot can be made of most anything, so long as they have four corners and tzitzit tied correctly. I'm using talit and talitot, the Sephardic and Hebrew pronunciation of these words, but you will hear them being called by their Ashkenazi pronunciations, talis and talisim, by many of the people I interview. And with that, I bring you to my first interview. I was so nervous, and she was so gracious and so brilliant. Let's hear Joy Layden introduce herself. I'm the uh, officially the Goddessman Professor of English at Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University, which is an Orthodox uh, Jewish institution. Uh, and even though I'm not Orthodox, um, I am the first, and as far as I know, still the only openly transgender employee of any Orthodox Jewish institution. And I've done a lot of uh, speaking and writing about trans identities and Jewish identities and uh, about how they intersect and um, published a couple of books where I talk about those things most uh, recently, The Soul of the Stranger, reading God and Torah from a transgender perspective. 
cat. I actually have that book in front of me right now. Um, it's very engaging. So thank you for writing it. Um, thank you. Well, um, on this show, I'm really interested to be talking about Talitot and Tzitzit. Um, I'm trying to talk specifically about this and these ritual objects because um, well, I work tying tzitzit as one of my jobs and wow, um, I am trans and I think when I'm sitting there tying I end up having a lot of thoughts about what's going on and who's wearing them and how I should be wearing them or could be wearing them mm -hmm. and what they've brought up for me and what they might bring up for other people. Um, so mm -hmm. I guess to start off, I'm curious what your first memories with Talitot and Tzitzit are, if those are the same memory, if those are different, um, just kind of where that brings mm -hmm. you back to. Uh, those are different memories for me. Um, I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. We were ethnically Jewish, and part of that for my mother was uh, she wanted us to be part of a synagogue so that uh, my sister and I would grow up with, um, as my mother puts it, a sense of who we are. And uh, she didn't uh, grow up with a religious background. Her mother's family very religious, but her mother was the non-religious child in the religious family. Um, but they, my mother grew up in the Jewish ghetto in Montreal, and so she felt that that was enough to give her a strong sense of Jewish identity without a sense of Judaism as a religious practice. But she felt that we needed uh, bar and bat mitzvah and Hebrew school, that kind of stuff. So, uh, I was attracted to Judaism, not because it was important in my home, because it, it really wasn't, but because when we went to synagogue, it was the only thing that I'd encountered that was as strange as I was. Judaism is really strange. Um, it's very old and uh, didn't fit at all in our really kind of assimilationist, middle-class, white, uh, Jewish lives. And but it was it was different in all of these uh, ways that um, weren't were supposed to be socially acceptable, like not even commented upon. So I had this sense of uh, gender difference that I felt was really uh, problematic. I had to hide it. It wasn't okay. But this weird Jewish stuff, Judaism stuff, um, was okay. And so that was really attractive to me. So my mother, probably because she didn't care very much uh, about the practice of Judaism, it was more about transmitting a sense of Jewish identity to her children, had picked a very strange shawl. Um, 
it was the remnants of an Orthodox shul that had burned down. And most of the um, Orthodox members of that congregation had formed a new shul and that was Orthodox, but there was a small group of uh, Ashkenazic Eastern European refugees who were elderly and didn't speak English very well. And they instead joined with young families like mine, who I guess you would call them reform, but it wasn't a formal identification. It was just not Orthodox not too invested in anything except children having Hebrew school and bar and bat mitzvahs. And so when I, um, I was really uh, into going to services because uh, I was attracted to the strangeness and uh, because I was also looking for some kind of formulation of my relationship to God. And but when I, when I got there, there were these old men who were delighted to have anybody who was younger than 70 years old. And they wanted to share their Judaism with me. And they would <clears throat> explain things to me in great detail. But of course, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. So nothing that they said to me interfered with the strange idiosyncratic ideas about Judaism I was making up on my own. Um, one of the things that they did was, when I was still quite young, they started uh, putting a talit on me. And I didn't realize this was something that I was supposed to be doing myself at first. But I remember um, them wrapping it around me, pointing to the prayer, that the blessing that I was supposed to say. And I remember having performance anxiety about it. Uh, it was a familiar feeling to me because I always had performance anxiety about um, acting male. I felt like I was always in danger of not doing it right. But I was also worried that uh, I might do it too well, that if I performed maleness too well, it would undermine my sense of uh, female identity. So um, I don't think that I knew that putting on a talit was a gendered act at first um, because they couldn't explain to me why I was doing it. So I worried about whether I was doing it right. and um, But I also remember really enjoying the the physical feeling of it as a garment. And part of my um, kind of tormented relationship to gender was that I didn't feel that it was okay to enjoy uh, garments. That was something that to me was like a feminine thing. And so um, it was too dangerous for me to do anything that might express uh, my female gender identity. But that was okay here. And so um, these Talesim were old and worn out, and they were just the standard American Jewish synagogue issue. They'd probably been in, this was the 1960s, they'd probably been in use since the 1950s. Um, but I, I liked the way that they felt in the sense of being surrounded. And there was also something that felt 
related to the forbiddenness of expressing my gender identity. This was a garment that was expressing something about my identity in a way that I usually felt like I couldn't do. Um, later, they would give me uh, tefillin, um, but they never gave me the um, talikatan, itzi, that uh, I came to much later and in a very different way. When when did the talikatan enter the picture for you? That was not until, um, I must have been my 30s. Um, at that point, uh, I had, uh, I was married, I'd been married for a long time, uh, since I got out of college and, uh, had children and I was a struggling academic. I had a PhD, but not a, um, not a regular job at first. And I was, um, Partly because I was getting older, I think, but partly because of having children, I was struggling more and more with not, ex was becoming more and more difficult to not express my gender identity. And I would have these like, gender breakdowns is the way that I um, thought of them to myself. And it felt like, kind of felt like an alcoholic binge. I would just be consumed by this desire for transformation and that's all I could think about, and that was very um, painful. And afterward, I felt very ashamed, and like I had lost control. And it is um, because I had carried on my uh, childhood relationship with God, this feeling of a personal relationship. After these things, I would feel this sense of what God wanted me to do to, I thought of it as penance. I came to think of it in somewhat different ways. But uh, I remember I was on my way to my very first uh, post-PhD job. I was going to be teaching at Princeton as an adjunct for the first time. And uh, I had had this gender breakdown. And um, I realized suddenly that what I, uh, what I was supposed to do, what God wanted me to do, was start wearing a kippah all the time. And I'd never done anything to identify myself visibly as Jewish outside of a synagogue. I was, um, I had a Jewish identity. I had a religious identity, but I didn't wear like a Magain David or anything that, that would identify me that way. And I was thought, this is insane. And I felt very uncomfortable, but um, I had a kippah and a tubby because I uh, did use them in daily prayers. And so I put it on. So I showed up uh, for my first day of teaching, bizarrely dressed. I was the, uh, wearing a kippah, which I had gone to Princeton for my PhD, but I'd never worn a kippah there before. And um, wearing shorts, which is not what you're supposed to do when you teach at Princeton. It's a very <laughs> conservative school. And um, and probably really crappy shorts and shirt. I was just, I felt like a fish out of water in every possible way and deeply ashamed. And on a later gender breakdown, I realized that I needed to start wearing a talit katan and I had to 
order one from the internet. And I thought that was very strange because I'd never known anybody who uh, wore such a thing. Later, when I um, was starting to um, transition, I realized these things that I had thought of as penance were actually the first time that I had chosen to wear clothing that marked me as visibly other and that expressed an identity that I normally had kept hidden. And I, I realized that in a way that was practice for being trans. And that uh, reflects the way that I felt about Jewish and trans identity my whole uh, life, which is that being Jewish was a way of being different that was um, that I could express in some ways. And being trans was a way of being different that I couldn't. And so being Jewish sort of taught me about being and uh, a minority in ways that really um, were very useful I started living as openly trans. Sorry, that was about more than the... No, that was... <laughs> but it's very beautiful to hear, I think, um, the... It brings up for me kind of a question of, of passing of like mm. where you get to be when you, uh, how do I want to say this? That you can control how you appear to people and sometimes one is safer and hurts more. Yes. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's, I've never, I guess, heard it, um, framed the way you just said of Judaism being the one that was at least more publicly acceptable. Um, and that's powerful to me. Um, do you still wear a talus? Well, rarely um, for a few reasons. So when I started, when I uh, when I started realizing that I couldn't live as a man anymore, it was a long uh, and very difficult process because so many people's lives were built around my male identity, and um, there are a lot of issues that are not related to uh, Talesim here. But uh, I had gotten a job at Yeshiva University. And I was um, a very weird artifact to them, not because I was trans, that's a way I would become strange later, but because I was a non-Orthodox who was nonetheless religious. And that's something that um, was like being a platypus or something. It, it was a bunch of mixing categories that weren't supposed to get go together in their world. And I was, you know, I was wearing a, a tzitzit and, and a kippah, and I was not orthodox. So, um, which they could see because I was Ashkenazic, but I was wearing a bokhar and kippah that uh, I was wearing because it stayed on my hair better. They do that. Yes. And I didn't feel it was okay to wear bobby pins because part of my 
neurosis about um, hiding my trans identity. Uh, bobby pins and hair was part of the forbidden things that uh, women do that I couldn't allow myself to do. So, uh, so they hired me, and uh, with this uh, strange, really queer uh, form of Jewish identity that had nothing to do with gender or sexuality, and um, as I was, uh, I entered into therapy with a, a therapist to work on the gender stuff. And in one of our sessions, she startled me by saying, is it comfortable for you to wear those things? Because aren't those expressions of male Jewish identity? And I realized, yeah, of course I was wearing them because I felt like I didn't have a choice but to live in ways that ex uh, expressed a male identity. And I took them off, and I immediately felt better. Um, not because I thought there was anything wrong with them in themselves, but because for me, they were uh, part and parcel of this of maleness that, that I was feeling entombed in. So I stopped uh, gradually, stopped wearing them, and that was part of my. Uh, transition and when I of course I, I wasn't I wasn't ever orthodox so I never belonged to any show in which that wasn't egalitarian in terms of gender in all of the shows that I belonged to it was normal for women to wear telecine and kippot it wasn't normal for anybody to wear tzitzit um, but in services it would that was normal but to me, uh, it didn't feel comfortable. So it's something that I do, like I did it on uh, for the high holiday. I wore a talit, but and I have a beautiful one that was given to me as part of a transition ritual. But it has never been something that I've been able to make my own as part of my my real identity yeah i think that's something i'm very curious about um is is how um how to grapple with these ritual objects that judaism has brought us that kind of approach gender or have been taught to us in such a binary way mm -hmm. um and and that because we don't fit into that it's either something i think as trans Jews we have to reject or make something new out of um or you know find some in between way to engage with it um and yes, uh, I'm curious if that, I feel like you started to talk about it, but I'm curious if you have any more thoughts on, on that with your own practice. Well, the talit that I had used for most of my life was one that I was given at my bar mitzvah. And so it was really, and I used it all the time because I prayed every day and, um, 
on my own, usually not in services, but sometimes in services. And I, when I had children, I would uh, hold whoever of the kids was a baby while I was praying in the Talit. So it had little um, yellow poop stains on it and was very dear to me. Um, and, you know, because it was bound up so much with my, not so, it wasn't just, my life as a man was bound up with my life as a parent and raising my children and um, and this certain kind of Jew relation to Judaism that was part of my uh, life as a man. So it was it's it's strange. In general, I I had a very binary um, idea, as many trans women generation do that. You know, you're either your true self or a false self, and it's all one or it's all the other. So the idea of having aspects of my life, which is true, like I value, I'm not rejecting being a father to my children, that's crucial to me, but I don't really know how to integrate it into a full sense of who I am, and that talit that I'd had my whole life that I still have was part of that. Um... So I just stopped wearing it. it. Didn't you know? It was kind of a short circuit. Um, it didn't feel right not to wear it, and it didn't feel right to wear it. So at a certain point, um, I'd been living as myself for a few years, and I was with, but not yet married to um, the the woman that I'm married to now. Um, and I felt like I needed some kind of a ritual to consolidate my new sense of who I was. And I worked with Rabbi Jill Hammer to um, put that, uh, put something together. And my wife bought a talit for me that was presented to me as part of that ritual. And I was sobbing, tears were streaming down my face and the tears were kind of a talit and um and there it was this vision it still looks new because i've hardly worn it the other talit is so worn this talit is so new and it represents a it's beautiful like a vision of a life in which my jewishness and my transness and my gender all completely integrated, but it, that's not a life that I have, that I've reached yet. And I, I think what you were saying before about needing some kind of other relation to this gendered ritual object, obviously I can't wear it if it signifies maleness, because I didn't grow up a female. Wearing a talit is not a liberatory gesture. It's not an assertion that, well, I'm equal to men, therefore I can wear a talit, because I, I know that according to the most conservative versions of Judaism, I'm still a male, and I should be wearing a talit. So how can I wear it in a way that is authentic uh, to me and is not where... When I'm wearing it, I'm not um, distracted from the work of prayer by the 
the conflicts around genderedness. I, I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, it's a big, um, it's a big question and kind of internal struggle. Yeah. I'm curious, you've, you've written a lot about your relationship to God and spoken a lot about it. And I know that, um, where like wearing the tzitzit is a commandment given by God in the book of Numbers. And I'm curious, I guess, I've so I've been reading your book, The Soul of the Stranger, and in it, the way you describe God is as somebody who is also on the outside and who doesn't fit and who doesn't have a body that makes sense to the world. And I guess I'm curious um, if there, if, if you've thought of any ways to read a passage like the one in the book of Numbers um, through the lens that you're reading mm. Torah in, in your book. That is a great question. Do you have the um, the verse so I can look at it and um, not just make stuff up? Yes. Um, Which I'm also good at. <laughs> um, let me pull it up. I had it up and then I the internet cut out. So um, let me get it. Uh, okay. Tzitzit fulfilled the commandment in Numbers 37. In the portion called Parshat Shla, speak to the Israelite people and instruct them to make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout the ages. Let them attach a cord of blue to the fringe at each corner. That shall be your fringe. Look at it and recall all the commandments of God and observe them, so that you do not follow your heart and eyes in your lustful urge. Thus you shall be reminded to observe all of my commandments and to be holy to your God. That is definitely the commandment, but there is no Numbers 37. The last chapter is 36. That is, okay. My Jewish <laughs> learning is then wrong. Which Not to say fake news, but let me see. <laughs> okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna look again on Chabad's website. Um, All right, this is saying 1538 and then Deuteronomy. Okay. Let's look at uh, in 38 and see if that turns out to be right. Well, um, I'm finding that it's numbers 1537. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Good. Okay, so the context of this is the, um, it's horrible. One of the many horrible things that happens in Numbers is um, in the verses right before that, they uh, somebody is found gathering wood on Shabbat and there's no instruction about what should be done to them. And God says, 
the whole community has to stone the man to death. Huh. So they do that. Uh, there's, uh, that comes right after the, um, well, there's a lot of stuff about, uh, commandments around sin offerings before that. So the context of this is anxiety about breaking the commandments that God has given. And the, it, the juxtaposition implies, but it doesn't, you know, the Torah doesn't make clear usually the logical connections between things. So it feels like God might have said, ah, this dude forgot you're not supposed to do this on Shabbat. I guess human beings need more than just commandments. They need a reminder that they should follow the commandments. And um, so that the, the uh, commandment about tzitzit seems like a um, an attempt to prevent further uh, errors like the, the gathering of wood on Shabbat. And it's, so the, if that's right, there's nothing gendered about the fact that it's a man gathering uh, wood on Shabbat. In terms of the way the story is told, gender isn't a factor. And the community that gathers to hear the sentence, it's the whole community. So that again is everybody and they're all supposed to be stoning him. So as uh, as near as I can tell, the way this stuff is written, this is before the uh, later gendering rabbinic commentaries and halakha put on all of these things. At this point, most of the commandments are given to everybody at once and everybody is supposed to be responsible uh, for following and speak to the Israelite people again it's not it's not a gender-based thing it's not something that would be specific to men and exclude women and in this formulation it wouldn't exclude people who don't identify either as men or women it's just if you're part of this people you need to to uh, do this so you can basically so that you can say to yourself, "Huh, isn't that weird? Look, I got this uh, this fringe hanging under my under my garment. What the heck? What's going on with that? Oh, right! I have to follow God's commandments. That seems to be the um, the kind of technology that God has come up with here, and I have to say, in a lot of the Torah, and here I would uh, think this is an example, it looks like God is um, has an experimental relation to humanity. Like God keeps trying to figure out what will work to set to create a community in which human beings will actually remember that God's there all the time and act accordingly. And God does not seem to realize that anything that we do habitually, we're just likely to forget. So I have to say, personally, when I was wearing tzitzit, of course, I'm not a halachic Jew, so it couldn't work quite that way.
but I would just, I didn't pay much attention to them. I didn't look at them and immediately remember all the commandments. It was just like, you get dressed in the morning, you put this stuff on, it starts to seem normal and normal is. I don't think I ever completely acclimated to it. I think it always felt somewhat uncomfortable to me to be wearing tzitzit, but I don't think it ever functioned um, mnemonically to me. But the, the theory here is that, so, I, so to me it looks like this is God trying to use what God knows about humanity. Human beings uh, are forgetful of what they're supposed to do. They're subject to impulses and urges. When they feel an urge, they're liable to forget what they're supposed, what God has told us to do. And human beings wear clothes. Hmm. What if they could wear a kind of clothing that would remind them to do what I told them to do instead of what they feel like doing? So the perspective in my book is focusing on the, the awkwardness of God as a non-human being trying to relate to human beings. And to me, this looks like a, a good example of that. Um, I'm not sure the Torah, I don't think, records a single example of somebody who's about to sin but looks down at their tzitzit and says, oh, right, don't gather sticks. <laughs> In fact, I don't think it ever mentions it again. I don't remember any any point at which it comes up. So uh, to me, it looks like um, God throwing spaghetti out to see what will stick on the wall. And I think later, uh, Orthodox practice develops this and elaborates on it and makes it a more central thing than Monarchies and um, people build on it. But in the Torah, it's just like, what the heck do you do to get people to remember that I'm here? And so you should do stupid crap like gathering sticks on Shabbat. I mean, come on, guys. That's pretty simple. Right. Right. Wow. It's interesting. It makes me think about like how to approach practice as more like what helps me or whomever remain mm. in touch with. Uh, I mean, I have a 10, I don't know what I believe in exactly. Mm. So I think for me, it's a question of engaging mm. with that question, mm. but um, just like, what is it that can push us to remember how to be with our core values or with our God or with whomever? Um, yes. And and that that's a really powerful way to approach maybe tzitzit or maybe something else. Yeah, it's a kind of very focused mindfulness practice. And the idea of wearing mindfulness or wearing, in, in your case, if you're not sure what it is you're, what you're wearing is a reminder that you should be actively not sure. You should be asking yourself that question and those questions. You should be walking through life clothed in the questions of where are you in relation to God and Judaism and and, and all of that.
Yeah, I think that's a really lovely way to think of it. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, there's something about it being, about being clothed in those things and how uh, important, you know, to me as a genderqueer person, clothing is something I do think about every day and that has really impacted how I, I choose to move through the world already. It's an active mm. choice all, all the time. And I, I know that's not true of every queer and trans person, but I do think it's a mm. somewhat common um, feeling. And so I'm curious. I, I Yeah, I guess I'm just struck by transferring that approach to to mm. Judaism that the way that mm. you clothe yourself matters so oh I love that so it sounds like you can deepen your relation to this aspect of Jewish tradition by looking at what clothes mean to you as a gender queer person and then thinking about the similarities or differences in the tzitzit Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm curious, are there any um, thoughts left ruminating for you or things you want to have said? Um, you know, this is probably neither here nor there, but I'm, I'm really, really on my mind, I think because it's Sukkot, and some of my most joyful memories of uh, wearing a tallit are on Sukkot. We, um, it's the one time in my life that I probably uh, will have ever owned a, a house. We had a small house in a, kind of in wooded hills, basically. Um, the house was a bit of a shambles, but it had a large amount of land and enough so that for the first time in my life, I built a sukkah, sukkah canton. We build it every year. And then I would say halal in the sukkah in the mornings of Sukkot. And I would uh, put on my um, talit. And I remember holding my... Um, my baby in the sukkah wrapped in my talit and singing and dancing to Hallel in the sukkah in the morning. And um, it was hard for me to be happy when I was living as a man. But that was about as happy as I, I could get. That's so special. Wow. Does your kid know about that? now? Nah, he couldn't uh, care less about my religious <laughs> or really most anything about me. Um, <laughs> a very healthy 16-year-old indifference. <laughs> wow. Maybe one day. Yes. A girl can dream. Absolutely. We gotta...
Thanks for listening to Fringes, my passion project supported by Advad Designs. For more definitions and links, as well as a transcription of this episode, please check out the show notes on our website, advaddesigns.com slash fringes. That's A-D-V-A-H-D-E-S-I-G-N-S dot com slash F-R-I-N-G-E-S. The interviews I do and the stories I get to share through this podcast cannot possibly capture the breadth of experiences in this world. I'm inevitably leaving people out. That's what it means to tell a story. That said, this project is growing. If your story feels left out and you want to share it, please reach out to me at emma at advadesigns.com. E-M-M-A at A-D-V-A-H-D-E-S-I-G-N-S dot com. This podcast is coming out on a bi-weekly basis. A huge thanks to my producer, Sarah Resnick, and to Home Despot, the musician behind the intro. And thank you for listening. See you in two weeks wherever podcasts can be found.